Welcome back to Serious Epidemiology. I am Haley Bannock from the Dalalana School of Public Health at the University of Toronto, and I am joined today by my friend and co-host, Matt Fox from Boston University. Hi, Matt. How's it going? Doing well. How are you doing, Haley? I'm good. I'm in the, the thick of teaching this semester, and uh, my students have a midterm exam today, which is always stressful for both me and them. Um, and so I, I'm, you know, I, I'm getting by. How about you? What's new? Yeah, pretty much the same. I am also in the thick of it, middle of the semester. I mean, obviously, by the time this comes out, it, it will have, we will have finished grading and all that sort of stuff. But yeah, middle of the semester, I find, is is often the, the hardest time of, of each semester. You know, I would have said that as well, but I, all through September, I kept telling myself, it's just so hectic because of the start of the semester. It's just the start of, it's going to, it's going to calm down. It's going to, and now here we are at the middle of the semester claiming that the middle is the hardest part. Yeah, maybe it's all the hardest part. <laughs> it is all the hardest part. As you know, uh, we are dedicating the entire second season of our podcast to the new edition, the fourth edition of Modern Epidemiology. Today, we are very pleased to welcome Dr. Vasan Ramachandran to the podcast to have a con conversation with us about cohort studies. So for those following along with the textbook, cohort studies are covered in Chapter 7 of the fourth edition. Vasan is a professor of medicine and epidemiology and section chair chief uh, of preventive medicine at Boston University School of Medicine. Uh, Dr. Ramachandran is a trained cardiologist, principal investigator and director of the Framingham Heart Study and director of the Framingham Heart Study Fellowship Program in Cardiovascular Epidemiology for the past 25 years. He has also has an active program of research focused on genetic epidemiology and cardiovascular disease. So welcome. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you, Haley and Matt. It's a pleasure to be here and hi to the audience who will be listening to this podcast. So before uh, we get started with, um, you know, the hard hitting questions <laughs> that we will ask you about the, the chapter, we like to ask, you know, some fun questions, some lighter stuff so our listeners can get to know you a little bit better. So, uh, you know, the first question I have is, it's the middle of, of, I guess, hopefully nearing the end of COVID pandemic, but nobody's traveled in a little while and I've been dreaming of going on trips. So I guess I wanted to ask you, what's one place you've always wanted to travel or some place you've traveled and uh, you'd love to go back to? Yeah, I, I love the White Mountains, Haley, and they speak to me and just the beauty, the natural beauty and the solitude and being able to commune with nature. I love that experience. I'd love to go there under safer circumstances. Yes, yes, of course. Yeah, that sounds absolutely lovely and sounds sort of the exact opposite from big city Boston life. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. So maybe that contrast is what draws you to it so much. The nature always draws all of us. It's nice Agreed. to commune. I, I fully subscribe to the theory of uh, fresh air and nature as medicine. It's it's restorative in a way that, you know, I think it's, it's very vastly underappreciated. So, someday I will I will tell you all the story of how I once got almost stuck in a snowbank trying to cross the White Mountains in the middle of a snowstorm, but we'll leave that for another time. Oh, wow, Matt, like, I look forward to listening yeah, to that. Yeah, it sounds like an exciting adventure novel. <laughs> it's the start of a novel. Never mind podcasting, Matt. You're going to get into writing as well. Yep. Yep. All right. So the second question is, uh, would you rather live in a place where it only snows or a place where the temperature never falls below 100 degrees? I would choose snow. Really? <laughs> I choose snow. I, I love the idea of, you know, New, New England is beautiful, as you know. And, you know, the first snow of the season. And then, you know, we have our nor'easters, but then the place where I live, I live in a little, uh, you know, uh, town west of uh, Framingham, where it's pretty rural. So it looks like winter wonderland. And mm. uh, it's, it's beautiful just to watch and then to see uh, the, uh, the, the deer that cross our garden, to so just watch them and see. And there's no Santa going along with them, but you, know, you can always... <laughs> That sounds very idyllic, actually. It sounds Does. like something sounds out really of a painting. Nice. Yes, it, yeah, is. Yeah. Yeah, it sounds lovely. Uh, okay, I, I yeah, I, I really like the snow as well. I, I What I don't like about the snow is when it gets all brown and yucky and it starts to melt, and that's that's the worst part of the snowy season. Yeah, but I, I agree I, with you. Those beautiful, fresh snowfalls with the big, fluffy snowbanks is, is always a nice scene. The, the problem with, with winter in New England is you go right from winter into mud season. Yes. <laughs> 
It's quite an experience to drive yeah. into Boston and have large SUVs splash at you. And yeah. Your windscreen, and then you hope that you're driving in the right direction in the right mm-hmm. lane. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Where there's no lines on the road anymore, it's just muck. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We all have those shared experiences, so I'm glad yep. we can relate. Um, okay. Good. Well, thank you for for sharing those with us. I guess the you know the listeners understand that we all appreciate nature, and I hope while you're listening to this podcast, listeners, maybe you go for a walk or get some fresh air. You know, that's one of the great things about podcasting is that you can take it anywhere with you. So so consider that because we all seem to subscribe to that as a as a theory. So to get into the actual content that we'll be talking about today, so this is, as we mentioned, it's chapter seven of the book, and the title is Cohort Studies. So it's focused on all different aspects uh, related to cohort studies. So the chapter defines a cohort as a group of people who share a common experience or condition. The beginning part of the chapter describes how we might set up uh, different cohorts or describe different cohorts, um, you know, whether it's defined by an exposure. In my teaching, I often use those who were exposed to a meltdown from a nuclear reactor or something like that. Um, you could also talk about occupationally exposed cohorts, um, some geographic definition of a cohort, cohorts defined by different health status outcomes or demographics, etc. So um, the Framingham Heart Study is by far and away one of the most famous examples of a cohort study in epidemiology, and it's actually mentioned in the, the textbook. So the cohort, it, correct me if I'm wrong, but it is defined by a, a common place, a geographic location. Is that correct? That is correct. That's the way it began. Okay, so it was initiated, uh, as it's described in the textbook, in a town, Framingham. Maybe I can lead you to a little bit of history of Framingham. You know, in 1948, this was an era where it might surprise the audience that we didn't really know what caused heart disease. The prevalent notions were that as you grew old, your blood pressure needed to increase so that it could, you know, with greater pressure, force blood through the brain. So this is, you know, from coming from the uh, textbooks of cardiology, that the only thing that separates a person with high blood pressure from doom uh, is the fool who would try to lower it. You know, this is these are the kind of expressions were there. Wow. So under those wow. circumstances, you know, uh, the National Heart Institute, as it was called then, it began as a study from the USPHS and then it transitioned to the National Heart Institution, Heart Institute, and. They wanted to set up a study that tried to explore what causes heart disease. And there were several places they were looking at. And uh, finally, Framingham was chosen for several reasons. One was that it was a blue-collar town at that particular point of time in 1948. The demographic pattern resembled that of uh, you know, the United States in general at that particular point in time. The people in that, uh, it was a town at that point, today it's a city, but in that town, they all predominantly worked at a couple of places. The Denison uh, factory, there was a factory there. There was a single hospital, the Cushing Hospital, that's no more. So uh, a blue-collar town, not much of migration, working in a common place, going to a common hospital. And there was a history uh, that actually goes back a century. Around, uh, you know, after the pandemic, the uh, 1918 pandemic, there was a project which began in the U.S. It was called the Tuberculosis Demonstration Project. At that point, we didn't really know that uh, tuberculosis was caused by mycobacterium tuberculosis. They just knew it was a lung infection. And the way they sort of um, approached it from a public health standpoint was to do what's called as mass uh, miniature radiography. You screen everybody with chest X-rays. And that was done in several cities and towns in the U.S., the Framingham experience with the tuberculosis demonstration project was then when it was announced, everybody who lived in the town showed up for an X-ray, the adults. So it had a spirit of participation, blue-collar town. Proximity to Boston was important. You know, the uh, why you choose a cohort study, there's always politics behind it. So there were advocates for it. And um, some of them were like Paul Dudley White, you know, who was a... Uh, the father of preventive cardiology. And then there was David Rothstein, Rutstein, who was the chair of preventive medicine at Harvard. So proximity to Boston, blue collar town, history of contribution towards public health measures. And that's how the study landed in the town of Framingham. And this was, I mean, this was just a few years after the end of, of World War II. So there was clearly a, 
you know, a, a refocused interest in health after the end of the war. Absolutely, Matt. You know, one, one of the stories that uh, we like to show, and actually the, the nice slides, and if you Google the records of uh, President uh, FDR, and, you know, what happened to him, uh, you know, he had very high blood pressure, the kind we wouldn't even hear of it, numbers in the 250s. And his personal physician at that point uh, always declared that he was uh, hale and hearty till he had a stroke. Uh, and oh, because the yeah. link between high blood pressure and stroke was not that obvious. So it became very clear at multiple levels, apart from the fact that post-World War II, there was a dairy boom. People, you know, the average American meal and the average American uh, breakfast were things that people enjoyed. And along with that, in parallel, we saw a rise in heart disease and stroke. And people were wondering what just happened. Mm. And since we didn't understand it, I think the USPHS and then the NHI, National Heart Institute, decided to invest. You know, how about we take a group of people, we study them at baseline, and then we follow them up over time and see who develops heart disease and who does not. Now, that's the classic, you know, structure of an epidemiological cohort study. And do you, do you think when this started in 1948, they envisioned that in 2021 it would still be going? Uh, no, actually, it was a 20-year program uh, from 1948 to 1968. And it's interesting you should ask, Matt, because in 1968, uh, uh, you know, uh, the, the Nixon government shut down Framingham because 20 years were over. We had identified the risk factors for heart disease. We knew by that time that high blood pressure, high cholesterol, smoking were bad for you. So they said we had discovered all we knew. And, and that's when actually Boston University came into the play because the then director, Bill Cannell and Roy Dauber, they were the two founders, you know, they worked for Boston University. So there's one particular exam, which is the 11th biennial exam of the original cohort, which was basically funded only by Boston University with some assistance of uh, donors. And, and during that time period, you know, this is again a tip for the people in the uh, in the audience, the young people in the audience, is that when people question your existence, the way you respond to that is through, uh, you know, PubMed. And, uh, you know, <laughs> the period from 1968 to 1971, Bill Cannell was very prolific. And, you know, some of the landmark papers in the New England Journal and the JAMA came out during that time period. And the flip side of that was that in 1971, the National Heart Lung Blood Institute, because that's what it became, uh, came back and rewarded the productivity with actually a second generation cohort. Mm -hmm. uh, that's called the offspring cohort, you know, another 5,200 people. The original cohort also had approximately 5,200 people. And these were the children of the original cohort. Uh, and, you know, the family design you know, began right there. And one other thing of historic importance uh, from a Framingham perspective, when we began in 1948, more than, slightly more than half the cohort was women. And heart mm. disease was not then identified as a problem for women. So one of the, you know, things that we have benefited from, and I and several others feel fortunate, is that we began with men and women at a time when, you know, epidemiology studies often left out, especially of heart disease, left out women. And then in 1971, you know, that's 30 years before the Human Genome Project. The children mm -hmm. were recruited and the angle was heart disease clusters in families. So there could be shared environmental factors or it could be inherited factors. So the seeds of what we currently, why we succeed is because they were sown way, you know, uh, decades ago by the forebearers who had the hunch that, you know, maybe this study would go on for much longer than it was intended. And you know, that's what's happening today. That is such a cool example. Thank you for sharing that, that history with us. So it's such a clear example of how a cohort is a group of people. So these folks that lived in Framingham were the original cohort of the Framingham Heart Study. They were followed through time with a prospective design. There were follow-up visits through time, as you mentioned. Um, and now there's a there's a second generation cohort that is the children of the original cohort members. So it's sort of a, they're building on the original cohort. And uh, is there a third generation cohort? Am I correct in that? Yes, Haley. So I think the study did very well. And in 2002, we recruited the third generation who are the grandchildren of the original cohort and the children of the offspring cohort. And some of the lesser known parts of Framingham is when we recruited the second generation cohort, we had missed some of the offspring spouses. 
So we went back and recruited what's called as the new offspring spouses so that we could, you know, get back some people into the mix so that we have the entire family pedigrees. We did a couple of other things during that time. Uh, one was that the demography of the uh, town of Framingham, it was still a town in 2002 when the third generation began. It had changed and it was important to recruit um, underrepresented groups. So we recruited what is called the second generation Omni cohort. Because along with the offspring, while it began in 1971, that's the second generation cohort. In 1995, we, we recruited um, what we call as the first generation minority cohort or the Omni One cohort. And then in 2002, when we recruited the third generation, we recruited a, a second generation of minority participants. And these two minority cohorts are not really linked in the familial structure that the original or the first generation, the offspring, the second generation, and the third generation are linked together. So Framingham is an assortment of about six cohorts, the original cohort, the offspring cohort, third generation, two minority cohorts, and the new offspring spouses that we went back and recruited people we had missed in 1971. That sounds very complicated, but I think is, is really um, representative of how the evolution of these studies you know, happens over time. Most of my work right now is with the Women's Health Initiative, another large cohort study, and the same holds true with the WHI, the Women's Health Initiative, is that there's all these different subsets, and you really need to be an expert in the, the study design and collaborate with those who know about how who each of these uh, samples are and who they represent and and um, because they're very useful if you understand exactly what they're doing. On the other hand, I think they can be confusing if you don't understand that this is a subset of that, etc. Yeah, absolutely right, Haley. And so just a question that I, I use the word representative in, in my last statement. And I wanted to ask you some questions about the representativeness of the Framingham Heart Study. And as you mentioned, you've recruited new um, minority participants in, in later waves of the study. And originally, the composition, I suppose, the racial and ethnic diversity of the town was different than it is today. So how does the information that we've gathered from the cohort um, apply to a more generalized sample of of individuals? Uh, that's a great question, Haley. And, and you know, um, the strength of Framingham lies in the fact that it's a transgenerational cohort, so we can do a number of family-based studies, and we can also do the traditional prospective cohort studies that recruit unrelated individuals. So the uh, the fact that it's a predominantly white cohort, over you know, 90% of our participants, we have a base population of about 15,000 across the various cohorts I described. Over 90% is white. So we're not really representative of the uh, demography of either the country or of the city of Framingham today, where up to a third of the people or even more actually are, um, um, you know, coming from um, minoritized groups, as some, some people like to um, label them. Yet, I think there is a commonality in terms of where Framingham can contribute. If you want to look at historic trends over a 70-year period, there were no cohorts over that period. So temporal trends, uh, another area where I think Framingham is very strong because of the nature of the three generations and the deep phenotyping. Human biology transcends uh, race, which remains a social concept construct. So some of the exposure outcome relations we find in Framingham, you know, they have been replicated in multiple um, multi-ethnic and multiracial cohorts. It's very good for deep phenotyping. It's also the kind of cohort which can serve as a good reference point if you want to collaborate with other cohorts in consortia. And we have such a consortium called the Cross Cohort Consortium, where 18 cohorts have gotten together. These are all NHLBI-funded cohorts, and we collaborate. So Framingham is a good source of you know what represents history, what represents deep phenotyping, what could be a good reference population. And we can integrate this and look at some of the differences. So it's a good source of data. By alone, it does not capture the diversity of the either the city or the country. And so, you know, it seems to me that so much of what we know about cardiovascular health comes from the Framingham Heart Study. I'm wondering if you could just talk about some of the things that you would say are, are the, the biggest uh, successes from the from the cohort study. And then maybe a few things that, you know, we we 
may be less aware of uh, because they may not get quite as much attention, but are also, as far as you see it, important findings? Yeah, th- thank you, man. That's a great question. You know, the term, you know, risk factors, you know, if we go back to its origin, one of the first yes. uses, uh, not the very first, but one of the first uses factors of risk was a paper in Annals of Internal Medicine by Bill Cannell, who was one well, of so the founders of So it's of not Framingham. the first use, because I, I always tell my students it's the first use. Yeah, I've gotten into trouble, Matt, for making that oh, claim, no. because uh, the, the people have pointed out that it had been used in the past, and Bill Cannell himself never claimed to be the first user. Okay, and, and, okay. Uh, you know, uh, and we could go on and on talk about mm-hmm. the appropriateness, because I'm pretty ambivalent today about actually the use of the word risk factors Me itself too. to you know, talk about the risk factors, but the use of the word risk factors. And by 1961, that's about, you know, just about a decade after it was founded, Framingham had shown that high blood pressure, high cholesterol, and high blood sugar were some of the forerunners of antecedents of heart, uh, of heart disease. So subsequently, Framingham expanded into uh, stroke epidemiology and started describing how high blood pressure led to stroke, how atrial fibrillation or irregular beating of the heart led to stroke. And then we have a very robust program that looks at um, uh, dementia and cognitive impairment. And some of the lesser known things from Framingham are, you know, uh, the subclinical disease measures that we have, that actually uh, the antecedents of dementia that you see in people who are typically in their, uh, you know, ninth decade of life. Actually, you can find its signatures, molecular signatures or subtle phenotypic signatures when you're in your 50s. You probably don't want to talk about them because I might have some of them. <laughs> but, you know, that's the way it goes. And likewise here. about, you know, heart failure. You know, we typically when I teach, and that's an area of, of you know, my interest, I say heart failure is a disease, you know, typically the clinical form begins after age 65. But the phenotypic characterization in terms of thickening of the heart muscle or subtle alterations, we start picking them up fairly early. Oh, wow. And, okay. Uh, so the molecular signatures, the structural signatures, the phenotypic antecedents of over disease, you know, they begin decades before. And I think just to quote uh, one of my favorites in epidemiology, Jeffrey Rose, you know, he, he once wrote, uh, I'm trying to get the exact words, uh, he, he wrote, normality blends into deviance mm. without evidence of a threshold. Oh, that's, that's, that's really well said. And, and you know, so what we see in clinical medicine as, you know, you physicians think in binary, uh, in binary terms, when you're sick enough to go to a hospital and you are overtly sick, you have a label of, you know, you have this condition. But, you know, those subtle conditions often antedate the actual presentation in an emergency room by decades. And, and and just to follow up, I mean, it seems that you know, in terms, at least if you're thinking in terms of dietary factors, Framingham showed that you know that that both um, you know cholesterol and and let's say high fat diets and 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 sugar consumption were were both uh, risk factors. And yet, it seems like in terms of the public health uh, approach, we focused almost or not exclusively, but mostly on the the cholesterol and fat side of things and less on the on the sugar. Do you have any insight as to why that happened? Yeah, I think I think it's called uh, human psychology. <laughs> you know, I, I once wrote a paper, Matt, uh, I think it was somewhere around 2008 or something. And that was one of the um, initial papers linking sugar-sweetened beverages to the risk of developing cardiometabolic disorders and the cluster called the metabolic syndrome. And, you know, that... I got quite a few angry emails from a lot of people because what I was doing, Matt, was I was uh, talking and we, we, we never obviously uh, implied causation. We always said there's an association. It may or may not be causal. We are very clear. But you were pointing out something which is a quintessential part mm-hmm. of, you know, the American diet, you know, soda. Yeah. So, you know, sugar also belongs to that category. So, you know, somebody told me you have these lean guys thinking in, uh, sitting in Framingham and telling us, uh, you know, how not to have a good quality of life. Yeah. So that was one of the emails I, I, I received. So I think it's hard to change human behavior, especially when you are touching areas which, you know, we really enjoy. Hmm. And, you know, sometimes we have always emphasized there's always moderation. But you know, the way things are processed, sometimes it's seen as black and white. If you show a link between something, you need to scrap it from the diet. So maybe, you know, our approach over the years has been recalibrated, Matt, where we are much more careful 
we don't use the word causal we don't say it should be sugar should be eliminated and i think it becomes more moderation and we also emphasize you know here are the things you can do if you do eat uh, or drink sugar sweetened beverages you know exercise so we also talk about the yin and the yang and how to con- uh, counterbalance it so the framing of the message and the anchoring of that message these are very important public health tools because we can publish in science but if you don't frame it properly if you don't anchor it properly uh, people might think that you know you're hitting out at some uh, essential part of their existence let me ask one more question i always hear rumblings around the the cholesterol issue not not specifically that the cholesterol isn't predictive of of heart disease it clearly is but questions about whether or not it is indeed um you know, it plays as strong a causal role as as we originally thought. Is that, am I just hearing the, you know, the sort of the skeptics or is there any anything in that? I, I think there's something in it. I think it, it has to do with the cholesterol components. You know, your total cholesterol that you measure in your blood is a sum of three parts. You know, there is the LDL cholesterol or the bad cholesterol. There is the HDL cholesterol or the so-called protective or good cholesterol. And there is a triglyceride related component. and you can mathematically sum them to derive your total cholesterol now it turns out over the last decade there's been a focus on the hdl cholesterol which mm-hmm. is part of risk prediction equations and mendelian randomization experiments have suggested that maybe the hdl association uh, it's more a marker than truly causal if you mm-hmm. use a mendelian randomization so that has caused people to you know extrapolate and and the doubts have been about hdl and it's a complex story because it deals not only with the hdl concentration but we also get into hdl function mm. so what when you're talking about total cholesterol we're usually talking about concentration and the mendelian randomization experiments have been done on hdl concentrations and some of them have questioned the causal link between hdl mm. and heart disease so sometimes people can misinterpret that but the story of ldl is very consistent Okay. And the story of triglyceride related lipoproteins is very consistent including in Mendelian randomization experiments that there is presumably a causal link and there are randomized trials that show that you lower LDL lower triglycerides there's clinical benefit. Mm-hmm. HDL the other story has been there were trials that tried to raise HDL and you know for a number of reasons and possibly off target effects some of those trials resulted in more deaths. Mm-hmm. So again that put the Uh, you know finger of suspicion that you know is hdl really causal mm. so that's the controversy around the uh, cholesterol story it's largely to deal with hdl there's a cousin of it that deals with nutritional epidemiology and its evolution and you know it's a area as we know which is expanding and some of the instruments and some of the assessments were not as strong as some of the molecular measurements so i think that's why the cyclical story of you know on again off again has gone on with uh, uh, dietary cholesterol and some components so hearing you talk with uh, such ease and such expertise about these relationships between what i like to call risk factors i know that there's some debate on that term let's r- exposures we'll call them for for a more benign term and all these various outcomes i think it's often overlooked how much effort and undertaking goes into the measurement of these exposures and in order to be able to you know have results like you're talking about the association between x and y or or you know sugar beverages and whichever outcome your metabolic syndrome somebody needs to have collected by somebody i mean an enormous <laughs> team of individuals need to have collected information on that in my work with the WHI when i started working with them i was so shocked at the enormous machine yeah. that is the WHI staff that enables data collection to have information for investigators and epidemiologists like us to analyze so can you describe for us you know what the cohort visit structure was like and let us know if that's still ongoing today yeah thank you hilly that that's a lovely segue into what it takes to actually build a cohort study and it takes several villages to do this and Agreed, yeah. sometimes i call them the three pillars of you know a cohort study you know and one of my first introductions to uh, framingham was when i joined as a fellow in 1993 and the director was bill castelli and one of the first things he told me uh, there's one thing you should never forget the participants are the study yes mm-hmm. without Agreed. them there would be no study so that's one pillar The second thing I realized pretty quickly was there was a second pillar and that had to do with the staff. 
Yeah. The staff who go in there day in, day out, and there are different uh, staff who do different things. Some who are there in the research center actually gathering data. There are others who actually recruit and get the participants to visit the research center. And to give you an example, you know, our Framingham recruitment coordinator, we've got a base of, you know, about 15,000 people, about 8,000 are alive. Our recruitment coordinator, um, I don't want to embarrass by announcing her name. She happens to know a lot of these people and these families on first name terms. That's why they come. They come back for public relations. So one of the things for the audience to understand is that uh, a lot of the cohort, you know, the way we work, uh, it's not a transactional interaction. It's a relational interaction. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, when you ask for data and, you know, that's a transaction, but how you generate that data is actually a relational experience of with the staff, with the participants, with the quality control that happens, a very meticulous process. And so Framingham has been in cycle almost throughout. Right now we are completing our 10th examination of the second generation cohort, the 10th quadrennial examination. So that means that, you know, we are uh, into, um, you know, close to about 50 years of follow-up because they didn't all happen at four-year intervals, so it's about 50 years of the offspring cohort. It also happens to be, uh, you know, the um, fifth examination of the Omni One cohort, which is the sister minority group for the second generation cohort. And next year, we hope to begin the fourth examination of a third generation cohort and the Omni Two cohort. So Framingham has been in cycle every you know, four to six years. And each time the participants come in, there's a different portfolio of studies or ancillary studies. And these are scientists, like some of the people who are watching this podcast or hearing this podcast, and they submit to the study and they conduct ancillary studies. So it's a pre-enrolled cohort that we examine at regular intervals, but the content of that examination varies at every examination. There are some things which are common. We always do blood pressure and anthropometry. But, you know, different time points and different studies, you know, like right now, the cycle we are doing, we do arterial stiffness using tonometry. We do liver fat assessment for, for presence of the fatty liver using ultrasound. We have bone densitometry, looking at bone density. We have a brain multidimensional study. We are looking at a gait mat and, you know, how people walk how people hear, how people see. So the characterization tends to be multidimensional and the content varies on an examination to exam exam basis. And what we do as core investigators is to process all this in a seamless fashion. You know, the ancillary studies are submitted for funding. They get funded. We ask for protocols. We develop the quality assurance component of those protocols. And we stitch that together into an examination, which typically lasts about four hours. So... Matt and Haley, it works like clockwork. You know, they come in, they get their informed consent, then they go to the next station. It works like clockwork, but the participants are always at ease Mm. because our staff are chatty. It's relational. You know, it's not transactional. So we give them time. We ask how their day is. And uh, it works like clockwork that despite, you know, it being a low-stress environment and going from station to station uh, efficiently, we still manage to finish in about four hours. And so, so that's the periodicity of the exam. The content varies. And then we clean the data after a cycle and then we put it into public data repositories, BioLink and DBGAP, so that others, such as the people who are listening to this, can also access it. So while we collect the data and the investigators do the study, we collect that data for a larger good so that other scientists who may not be as lucky as me to work in the Framingham, they can still access the data. There's detailed documentation of each of these data sets that, you know, what was measured with which assay, with what particular coefficient of variation. So there's a whole process by which we clean the data, document the data, upload it, because that's what the participants want. They don't do the study so that Vasan can analyze or Matt can analyze or Haley can analyze. They are agnostic. They want the data used for public health good. And, you know, our job is to uh, complete that entire conveyor belt process by which we gather the data, clean it, and make it available to test hypotheses way beyond what even we may have thought we would use it for. I I am always surprised when working with study participants how incredibly generous they are yeah. with their time and you know their involvement with the study. It is totally for the greater good of 
our understanding and of the scientific community and, and the public rather than any benefit that they get to themselves. You know, that line in the consent form that, that's always there. You may not experience any benefit to yourself, but please come in and give us five, four or five hours of your time with no benefit. It, it's just amazing how they how they are so willing and they're so proud to be part, you know, for the WHI participants, this is, um, you know, something that they share with their families. And we try to share the results of the study with them so they can, you know, um, disseminate that amongst their family and friends. Look what I was part of, even though, you know, I'm no longer benefiting from this type of information. This has downstream effects for lots of other people. It really is, you know, a beautiful type of, of relationship. Has beautifully articulated, Haley. You know that's why sometimes I like to say that cohort studies are in you know, scientific studies, but they are also human phenomena of contributorship to science. Of you know, one of the things lesser known facts about Framingham is uh, we don't compensate our participants. We have not done mm-hmm. that for seventy years, and the family structure uh-huh. helps because the grandchild comes because you know it's a family phenomenon. And one of the most touching moments was uh, j- just about last month. You know, we had. Um, one of our participants was um, the person was in hospice care and uh, you know we were not aware of it so when we contacted them uh, they said yeah i want an exam uh, you know wow. uh, in a hospice care because uh, as the passage right of passage through the human experience uh, framingham is an important station and they would want to make sure that they have done what they can do till the last, you know, uh, breath that they are left with. And that really moves me because that's the spirit of altruism. That's what gets us out of bed to understand we we are the custodians of, you know, uh, the rich uh, richness of spirit, of generosity, of contributorship that these people uh, illustrate on a day-to-day basis. I think that's one of the most beautiful descriptions of the experience of, of, of someone being in a cohort study I've ever heard. That's, that's, it's touching, man. You know, it, 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 when, when I heard it, I was teary-eyed because I felt like, you know, this is how strongly they feel. Yeah. And it uh, really uh, inspires us that, you know, we need to do right by our participants in terms of just their experience and also their data and also the science that comes out of that. When I work with students, uh, you know, with the the WHI data and and other investigators as well, I often remind them that each row of observation in this, you know, million row data set, each row is a person who, you know, came in and participated and gave up their time. But, But it's so easy to get lost, that message to get lost when you're just working with, oh, it's just data. You know, but when you think of how much um, went into generating that data, it's 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 just such an important point that I think is often overlooked, especially as we get into this, you know, maybe away from the cohort studies in the Framingham and WHI context, but more into the big data context. It, you know, it becomes even more lost that that data comes from real people. It's such an important message, I think. Yeah, you know, again, uh, you're preaching to the choir. What we do, <laughs> you know, in my role as, the, you know, running the fellowship program, we always require our uh, trainees to spend time in the Framingham Research Center talking to the participants. And, you know, when I was a fellow, this that's what I did for a couple of years. And it was one of, you know, really enriching experience, human experiences, because you actually, uh, the participants talk to you. And uh, you also begin to, we require that our fellows participate in the adjudication process and that they spend some time with the data management. So they understand that, you know, when they get at the end of the conveyor belt an exposure and outcome and and they link, uh, there's a huge effort that goes into it. That just like you said, those numbers in a cell are uh, actual human experiences uh, contributed over a period of time. Enormous patience is required to gather that data till you accrue enough outcomes, as you know. Absolutely. So um, in order to use the information, I guess, on exposures or risk factors or whatnot, we also need information on outcomes or endpoints. So uh, can you tell us a little bit about, in the, the Framingham context, how you collect that information and what are sort of the main outcomes that are adjudicated? Right. Thank you, Haley. You know, uh, w- one of our strong focus areas of interest is cardiovascular disease. And so we have longitudinal surveillance of our participants 
so they have periodic research visits to the Framingham Research Center, but the surveillance is always always going on in the background. And so um, we consent our participants so that when uh, they have a hospital encounter, a physician's office visit, an ER visit, ED visit, or uh, a specific hospitalization, we retrieve those records. And we have an adjudication panel, and they're separate ones for different purposes. There's one that does cardiovascular outcomes, one that does stroke outcomes, one that does dementia and cognitive outcomes. So we have got uh, adjudication panels that are domain-specific in terms of the outcomes. And we retrieve those hospitalization visits. And in a typical review session, um, one of uh, the nice things about Framingham is that there would be typically three physicians and we debate it. Just because the death certificate says, you know, a particular diagnosis. That, so it's done in blinded fashion. And we, we are blinded to age. We are blinded to gender. One person reads out the study. Yeah, then the ECGs are shown. Then we have to generate a consensus among others. So it's a laborious process. But I really love that process because uh, it's not using a DRG code or ICD code. And uh, so... It's very meticulous, it's ongoing, and there's a constant retrieval because whenever our participants uh, are in touch with the healthcare system, we retrieve the primary data source. And then we have a whole health information management team that culls it from the hospitalization records. We uh, you know, take out the important parts, those records are annotated, and then it's brought to a review panel. Uh, there are other outcomes that happen uh, based on what we call as uh, annual health history updates. So things like, you know, whether you have developed diabetes or whether you have high blood pressure, they are often based, you know, at Framingham exams, which happen at two or four year intervals. But every year we also ask them, since you last spoke to you, have you started blood pressure lowering medications? You know, what are they? Can you name them for us? Have you started on blood sugar lowering medications, cholesterol lowering medications? So there's continuous surveillance that goes on interspersed with deep phenotyping at exams uh, retrieval of hospitalization records, annual health history visits, uh, typically, you know, uh, over the phone. So there's constant monitoring of the people for a range of outcomes and different outcomes are retrieved through different processes. But all of them have QA and QC built into it. Matt? And just to clarify, when you say deep phenotyping, do you mean, you know, sort of a deep description of their characteristics and, and medical histories and, and things like that? Yeah, I think, for example, you take myocardial infarction, you know, we would classify it as, you know, now there's a, a, a classification from the AHACC, type 1 MI, type 2 MI, type 3 MI. Is it a supply ischemia? Is it a demand ischemia? Then the location of the myocardial infarction is the anterior wall, inferior wall, posterior wall. Then when the episode happened, what were the enzymes that were obtained? What was the highest mm -hmm. peak that was obtained? What what was the panel that was done? Was an echocardiogram done? How many days it was done? What was the squeezing or the ejection fraction or the pump function? So the detailed cataloging of all that happens in the hospitalization. So our forms mm -hmm. are very detailed, where we capture with granularity, not just that the person had a heart attack, but you know, uh, what were the other correlates of that particular hospitalization. I guess I, I have a sort of nitty gritty detail kind of question about, about surveillance. Sure. But so you have a, a study participant and they go to the emergency room, they have an MI, they have a procedure done. Uh, let's say a couple of days later, they get discharged from the hospital. How does Framingham Heart Study get that information? I understand from a medical record, they can abstract it, but but where is the link between the participant in the real world and the data center collecting yeah. that data? So there, there are three types of links, Haley, that happen over there. You know, one is that some of our participants, since they are in the catchment area, for example, and this is specific to stroke, uh, if a participant with stroke gets hospitalized to the Metro West Medical Center, you know, we find out almost the same day and a Framingham uh, neurologist would go out and see them within 48 hours. Wow. But that's our stroke protocol because we, we like to uh, examine the participants. There are others which we detect through uh, your uh, health history updates. Every time we ask, since we last spoke to you a year ago, have you had a heart attack? Have you had an episode of irregular beating of the heart? Have you had an episode where you were short of breath and had a diagnosis of heart failure? And then we do a deeper dive. They say yes. Where were you hospitalized? What were the dates? And, and, you know, we have consented them. So then our medical health information management team would reach out to those hospitals and retrieve those records. A third way is that when they actually come for a visit, 
So the first screen is always of hospitalizations and physician and, uh, encounters since you last came into the heart study or since we last spoke to you. So we wrote down, we write down the date of hospitalization, the doctor, name of the doctor, and then our health information management department is very skilled from drilling down deep over there. So that's all I would do is, you know, you were hospitalized at the Metro West Medical Center on such and such a date, and this was the treating physician. And from there, next time I see it, it would be in the review panel where we have the stacks of hospitalization records, all of them beautifully earmarked as to what happened, when it happened. And you know, it works very smoothly, but that's that's what we do in terms of operations. This is the way we have been doing it for years. So it sounds complicated, but it works on autopilot, Haley. Thanks for clarifying. I think it's, again, an often overlooked point. Oh, so somebody had a heart attack. Oh, somebody had a stroke. But how does that information get transmitted is, is you know, takes a lot of steps as you've described. So, so thanks for clarifying that. I think the last kind of topic area that I, I just briefly want to touch on that I think is very relevant to cohort studies is about uh, loss to follow up. And, you know, for a study that's been going on for such a long time, losses to follow up are inevitable, especially I would imagine in a geographic based cohort or what started as a geographic based cohort, there must be folks all over the country of the United States and maybe beyond that as well. So um, what is the protocol? How do you, you as a study uh, decrease the chances that that folks are, are being lost to follow up? That's again a fantastic question, Hilly. I think one of the strengths of Framingham lies in the fact that it's also transgenerational. So we have the family structure and uh, so when somebody is missing, it's always possible to trace them through a family member, through a next of kin. And we also understand and we are very patient with our participants. You know, they just because they miss an exam doesn't mean they won't pop back right in. You know, maybe the timing was not good now. So we tend to give them, you know, the leeway that they can opt in and opt out. But we don't call that a, missing an exam is not lost to follow up because we know they'll come back next time. We also... Are very, uh, we take extra care that there are special occasions or time windows when people do come back to New England when they're living outside. You know, Thanksgiving is one and you know, uh, Christmas is another time. So we scale up our examination. So if a participant calls and they are from North Carolina and they say, I'm coming down for Thanksgiving, can you see me? The answer, there's only one answer, Haley. Yes, when can you come? And so we work around their schedule rather than them working around our schedule. We also have, you know, Saturday appointments. And so we try and have weekend clin uh, research center exams. So we accommodate our participants because, like I said, they are the study. So to avoid that, we trace them through next of kin, through their family members. And sometimes, you know, obviously there are other sources like when we're not able to contact them for some time, we search the National Death Index. So we do a lot of detective work. And all that is done by our health information management department. There, there are, we have staff who dig deep and figure out, you know, when who knew, uh, who last spoke to them, when they last spoke to them. We also have a participant tracking system where there are notes where which you know we can cross tag with each other that you know somebody's cousin came because there's a you know there are about 550 pedigrees embedded in this cohort structure. Wow. So there's not just children and parents and grandparents. There are uncles and aunts, and we understand that. And so if somebody else is coming, we use it as an occasion to, uh, if a participant comes to update, you know, somebody else's information, you know, we've not seen your cousin or somebody, uh, do you happen to know where they are? So there are always, you know, flags and there are reminders to us that we need to track, uh, track people. And our overall loss to follow up is, you know, it, it varies by, by cohort, but it's uh, still remarkable that it's still less than 10% that we do not know the status of. And that's largely because of the, I think in part, the transgenerational structure, the geographic uh, localization. Sometimes we have gone to, uh, I think years ago, we went down to Florida to see a group of people in nursing homes uh, with, you know, with tubes of blood so that we could ship it, FedEx it from there. So we uh, chase them in a nice way, in, in a friendly way, because, you know, we love our participants. So we want them to know that the study is willing to go. If you mm -hmm. cannot come to us, we will come to you. 
That Florida connection reminds me, uh, we have a similar experience with our WHI participants. So in Buffalo, um, many older adults uh, fly down to Florida or warmer places in the, the wintertime. And I was collecting some pilot data on the participants, but I was limited to the, the April to October time window because outside of that window, you're going to get all sorts of women that say, oh, I would really love to come in for your study visit, but I'm in Florida. I, I can't come in. for So it's it's a, a unique um, problem when you're collecting data. People have to be available and you need to accommodate their schedules, uh, you know, in order to, to collect that data on them. I think you're absolutely right. So I I think uh, we need a lot of EQ to understand when do people come, what makes them come, what are those time windows. And since these are longitudinal studies, we know their participant preferences. We know when, which are the time windows people. And we try to accommodate our scheduling to, so they dovetail nicely and respect the participant preferences so that we make it easy for them uh, to come to us or sometimes we go to them. That's absolutely true. So, so thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, I really, I love chatting. I think we all learned a lot from, from your experience and you sharing kind of the underworkings of, of the study. Um, I think that you both, Matt and Vasan, would probably agree that um, I'd like to dedicate this episode to two of those pillars that you mentioned earlier on, being those study participants that are so uh, important to our knowledge of science and public health. They, they just play a role that I think is often overlooked or not valued as much as it should be because it really is the highest level of, of contribution. And secondary to that is the study staff. I mean, mm-hmm. it is just so amazing what these teams of individuals are able to accomplish. And, you know, sure, they could record something this way, but, you know, they go out and look in those medical records and collect the most possible correct and detailed information. And and without those individuals, we would never have the data that we have on these study participants who have uh, contributed. So, so um, yes, that, that would mm-hmm. be uh, who I'd like this, this episode to be dedicated to. So uh, thank and you. If, if, if I may, a shout out to some of the people who are listening. If you're interested in non-COVID times, coming and observing what goes on in Framingham, write to us. Oh, you're welcome. And, and, and use our data. You know, our model is a Framingham without walls. So you don't necessarily have to work in Framingham or in Boston University to access the data. Uh, talk to us. We'll guide you through the process of how you can use Framingham data, how you can take the science to the next level. So our model is what I call an acronym FHS, W-O-W, without walls. So thank you for having me. And I want to give a shout out to all the people listening and hope this was somewhat useful to you. So for those of you who are not members of the Society for Epidemiologic Research, I strongly recommend that you consider becoming a member. Membership gets you a discounted fee for the annual meeting, which is coming up in June next year in Chicago. It also gets you access to the SER library, which gives you some great learning materials, seminars, and activities. Find out more at epiresearch.org. We also want to plug our sister podcast from the American Journal of Epidemiology, Casual Inference. If you like this podcast, we think you'll like that one. Just as one last reminder, the views expressed on this podcast are those of the host and guest and do not represent the views of the Society for Epidemiologic Research. So we thank you for listening. We really appreciate having you and uh, please look out for our episode coming up next month.